0: what you have always wanted to do. Today on Max's Island, I've got Simon Bowen. Welcome to the island, Simon.
1: Great to be here, Tony.
0: Simon, on Max's Island, we like to hear the stories of people from that time in their life where something dramatic happened that really changed their life, or when they made a decision specifically to do something out of their comfort zone, or do something against the grain, or perhaps even do something when people said you shouldn't do it. Have you got a story around a time in your life where things perhaps changed?
1: Yeah, I I certainly do. I grew up in the country in Western Australia. Lots of stuff happens in the country. (laughs) So there's lots and lots of stories. But I have, there's two really important periods in my life. Uh, One during my 19th year and this year from November 2019 right through 2020 that really reinforced, I guess, a fundamental sense of internal confidence that I've come to realise, you know, it comes not from the training and the study that you do, but comes from uh, your response in moments of pressure. And, uh, you know, both of those, the whole of my 19th year and, and this 2020 had major challenges to my health and indeed my life that demanded responses from me in the moment so you know during my 19th year I uh, I lived in the country I played sport at a, at a high level in the city I was traveling backwards and forwards all the time you know three or four times a week and you know I, I uh, fell asleep returning home from training one evening and uh, a friend of mine was following me and I Apparently I crossed the road uh, behind a truck that had just passed me and in front of another truck that was coming at me and went down a bank. And then I woke up as I went down the bank uh, and then hit a tree head on. And uh, as I hit the tree, the car then rolled two times. And uh, I, as I kind of woke up going down the bank, uh, I immediately went into you know a brace position, arms locked against the wheel. and. The steering the window the windscreen popped out I've got this very vivid slow motion mo- <laughs> movement of the car spinning and the and the windscreen popping out and thinking well that's that's weird you know it didn't break and you know came to a stop on the roof and the and undid my seatbelt and, and sort of fell to the roof of the car and you know that the entire roof of the car was at dash level other than the cockpit where I was sitting and had I not braced i mean the sum total of that injury was a whiplash for about six weeks but had I not braced in that instant that i woke up if my immediate reaction hadn't been to brace my head would have hit the steering wheel i certainly would have bounced around the car a whole lot more and the roof right next to me was at dash level but i literally got out of the car and walked up to the road where my mate had stopped and you know we kind of took the appropriate action from there The the two other incidents were you know in perth country country kid in perth with my white mate and we were just walking uh, you know, back to the hotel that we were staying at about 11 o'clock at night and five guys put up in a car and yelled stuff at us. And you know, we were a bit clueless in those days. And these <laughs> five guys, these five guys got out and just started laying into us. And my friend Michael uh, was on the ground and they were booting him. And I had, I just had this moment of realization. I just couldn't go to the ground. And so I grabbed a hold of a sign like a giveaway sign or something, and just focused everything on staying on my feet um, until eventually some other people yelled at them and these guys took off. And then the third incident was a fellow who actually leant in through the window of my car and held a butcher's knife to my throat. You know, this was over a girl in the country. He just hadn't come to the realisation they weren't going out together anymore. And, you know, in those days you pulled the lever on your seat and the back fell back. You didn't wind it back. And I, I, my hand must have twitched, and he'd said something like, Go on, have a go, you know. And I, I, for whatever reason, I grabbed the lever and pulled it so that the seat fell backwards, and then jammed his hand against the roof and wound the window up on his hand and locked his hand in to the window in order to get the knife off him so that, you know, the police could be involved and everything else. And I think. It, it really affected my night. It really affected that year. I took up taekwondo in that year. You know, I I never went out at night by myself. There was always a group of people. Um, it was. I was still living at home at the time. It was mayhem for my parents. They wanted to know where I was at, at all points in time. And so it certainly affected my trust of other people and situations. But the, but what it really did was gave me this unwavering sense that under extreme pressure, I know I hold my head.
0: So, at what point did you come to that realization? Was that something that was
1: immediate, or it took some time? No, it um, took a while. Years later like, for reflection. Uh, not years later, but you would imagine I, they all happened in the first half of the year. And so, you know, I was kind of okay. This is this is a, this is a bad year. <laughs> turns out my nineteenth. It turns out my nineteenth year was the most valuable year of my life. And so, they all happened in the first half of the year. So, I, you know, I had that period of time of not trusting anybody, not wanting to be out by myself and, uh, and then had started, you know, had taken up martial arts and thought, well, I've got to be able to, you know, if, if stuff like this happens again. And, but um, then it was, uh, you know, in the, in, when, when you're, when you're doing martial arts, there's a lot of stuff coming at you in the moment. It's a really fascinating, interesting thing. When I started thinking about those three incidents, the car accident and I'm rolling down the bank and the car spinning in slow motion, getting beaten up in the city and seeing Michael on the ground and holding the post in slow motion and then seeing him leaning through uh and then doing, you know, when I'm when I was kind of in taekwondo tournaments, in moments of pressure, I get this slow motion view of what's happening.
0: Do you think that is a really subconscious thing? Or do you think you prepare differently? and that you're alert to the situation where there may be um, pressure, where there may be those, that I situation?
1: I, I think it's a skill. Yeah. I think it's a skill that can be learned. So I played hockey. Hockey was my main sport. I played Aussie rules, but hockey was my main sport, and I, I played for WA, and I was a goalkeeper. And I had taught myself to see the ball in slow motion and big, uh, you know, I had a really fabulous coach who was a former state goalkeeper himself, and he had drilled into me the idea that the sooner you see the ball and the play happening, the slower everything becomes, and the bigger the ball gets, and the greater your chances of stopping the ball. So, if you only start watching the ball as it enters the you know the offensive D that they need to get into before they can take the shot, the ball will be normal size and fast. But if you start watching the ball and nothing else, not the players, nothing else but the ball as they cross the offensive 25-yard line in those days, which is between the halfway line and the D. It's called foveal vision, and your your centre of focus becomes so targeted on the ball that everything that happens around that ball goes slower and the ball gets bigger. And it's a skill. And I realise I acquired or developed a really acute sense of that skill through my hockey and and this and the levels of hockey that I played at, and I think you know when those things happened in my nineteenth year, it just triggered. You know that the pre because when you're a goalkeeper in hockey, particularly at a high level, you're always under pressure, <laughs> so, and you know it's past ten other players on your team, but they're all expecting you to make the save. You Nobody know, <laughs> gets there, so um, and. You know, goalkeeping is all hero or all failure, you know. So uh, I think it just kind of kicked in. And then it wasn't until I started doing taekwondo and even as a bit of a novice, I just had a really solid guard. People just couldn't get through my guard and it's because everything was slow. And that's when I started really thinking about I I just don't lose my head under pressure and I seem to have more time to think about things. I know, I'm sure now, I've thought about it a lot since, and I've done a lot of other kind of work over the years. And, you know, I I speak professionally for a living. I, you know, I'm often in front of hundreds or thousands of people. I'm supremely confident that I could walk into any room with any sized audience for any amount of time and hold their attention with no preparation if I didn't get the opportunity. You know, if you know your stuff uh, and you keep your head, you can kind of do anything in any circumstance.
0: So you relate the experience of your 19th year, those, those three incidents as a pivotal moment in you uh, starting to be aware of the, yeah. this skill and the, the need for resilience and, and confidence. How quickly, though, did you develop that skill and were you able to build on it to the point where you could, you know, walk into a room uh, of a 1,000 people and be su- supremely confident?
1: Yeah, so I think what happened was I, because I was still playing hockey then. And I think once I got back to hockey and I'd become aware of it through the Taekwondo, I, I really firstly started applying it back to hockey in a much, much more deliberate way. And um, had started studying some other things, uh, you know, and, and really started studying foveal vision, uh, F O V I A L, and foveal focus specifically. You know, it's possible to look back. If you put your arms out to your side, level with your head, uh, I can be looking at you on the screen, and and then move my hands backwards and still see them. It's 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 more all encompassing than peripheral vision, and it's a skill. And so I started applying it to hockey, mainly thinking, oh, this is going to be really valuable in sport. And um, then I started. Uh, then I you know, I, I, I'd been working in the, um, in the motor industry for a while and then I thought I'd go teaching. And, uh, you know, when I was first going to walk into a room with a bunch of teenagers, uh, I remember the, the, the teacher that was, you know, mentoring me said, oh, you know, these just teenagers are tough work. And I remember thinking, I've had someone hold a knife to my throat. Like, what could they really do? <laughs> <laughs> do you know? And yeah. I think that was the moment. I think that was the moment when I, I thought everything in life gets calibrated against that moment. You know, like oh, there's a pandemic. It's 2020. I've had someone hold a, li- a knife to my throat. What what could 2020 bring that I haven't confronted? You know, I had a severe injury to my back in November in Mexico. You know, and it required I had to get back to Australia. I had to get back to LA and then back to Australia. You know, 15 hour flight. In and everything below the waist had gone numb. You know, my foot had dropped, and it required. And this was last year. Even. This was November, just gone. Yeah, so a just year gone. ago. Yep a year ago, two days ago, and I had to get back to Mexico by myself, but I'm having to use wheelchairs to get through the airports and my wife is in LA and then a 16-hour, 15-hour flight to Sydney. I was supposed to be speaking at a conference, which I did, in a wheelchair, and then when I had the MRI, they sent me straight to St Vincent's for spinal surgery, a week in hospital there, and then four weeks on the spinal rehab ward at Fiona Stanley Hospital in Perth, And, and now a year of recovery. You know, I still am not allowed to jump. Uh, I I didn't drive until, I wasn't allowed to drive until, uh, I think, July or August. You know, physio three times a week and everything else. But I've had someone held a knife to my throat. So how bad could this be? You know, just focus on it. And I think the thing is, Tony, it's just, it's just the next action. You only have to think about the next action. So when a guy's got a knife in through my window, I, I actually just have to get his hand controlled. It's just the next action and then once it's controlled i can wind the window up it's just the next action
0: yeah i think uh, as humans we imagine the storyline way down the track yeah after the, this this could happen this could happen this could happen but that's a very good point that it's really only about the next moment in time the next yeah. action the next thing that happens and like many things in life it's it's about the way that you react to it often you don't you can't control the situation but you can mm-hmm. control the way you react and and uh, totally understand that once you have an ability to perceive that situation understand the techniques or the the skills yeah. internally that you need to adopt then it is that yeah but that, that presence of mind to understand exactly what to do next and not preempt three steps down the track
1: yeah i think i think that's right and 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 I've now I recognise through somebody else's experience the skill, and I talk about foveal focus and things like that. But the skill is actually presence in the moment. And so a, a client of mine, well he's a, he's a coach now in the US, but he spent nine years as a CIA operative in Afghanistan. And you know the process is here's your flip flops, uh, a Hawaiian shirt, pair of shorts, and a Glock, and uh, your job is to gather intel and um, let us know if there's gonna be an attack or something and just wander around the city. And, you know, he was a ranger. People are gonna think all my stories have to do with guns and knives or <laughs> but, but, you know, he's been in many gunfights and um, he teaches a form of meditation in the US now. And uh, for a long time, I've been quite interested on the three time zones. So there's the past, which is hindsight. There's the present, which is insight. And there's the future, which is foresight. And the average person spends about 20 to 30% of their time in the past, in hindsight, but they go into the past with regret and blame. If you look at elite athletes, they only spend about 10% of their time in the past and they go back there just to get the lessons. And they deal with the emotion and then leave it there. The average person spends about 20 to 30% of their time in the future, in foresight, and they go into the future with anxiety and fear. The lead athletes and performers head into the future to make plans. And then they bring those plans back. And they apply the plans from the future and the lessons from the past. And they spend 80% of their time in the present moment executing, practicing and doing. And so you know, when Greg talks about his time in the CIA, he's made a really interesting statement one day and he said, there is no fear in the middle of a gunfire. It's all before and after. You are so present, there is absolutely no fear in the moment. And so the place the place to find to be without fear is to be completely present. And that's when I realised that's exactly what had happened during the 19th year. That's exactly what had happened when three forwards are you know, are, 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 come, are attacking with the ball, you know, when I had to spend the 16, the 15 hours on the plane in excruciating pain to get back to Australia. And I just breathed my, I just, i probably counted every breath between LA and Sydney. And because the skill was just, you know, we talk a lot about presence, and I'm sure you've coached people around, yes. I, I, I bet, you know, but these are tangible palpable things that, that have happened, you know, through my own life experience, I'm just so convinced. So, you know, when you walk into a room full of teenagers to teach, and someone says, teenagers is so hard to teach. The truth is, if there's 30 kids in the room, 28 of them are a joy. And two of them are a challenge. And you get a choice. Do you focus on the 28 or the two? And if you really want to impact those two, you focus on the two. If you, you know, if you want to you know, the easiest class is to focus on the 28. If you walk into a classroom and you become really present to the two, just here's what's going on with a lot of teachers. They kind of want to ignore the two and push them to the side and focus on the 28. But if you really become present to the two kids, there's a reason they're being difficult. It's likely to be boredom, which might mean you're not teaching that well. It could be that's, that, they, that they have dyslexia or, the, or they can't read. But I guarantee if you teach those two kids really well, you'll probably also teach the other kids really well. And uh, you know, the presence lesson, that really pulled a lot of stuff together for me in terms of that moment. And, and of course it makes sense, doesn't it? If you're really present, things will slow down and you'll see, see the ball bigger. <laughs> the game will go slower. You have more time to react. And all of a sudden it feels like you're always in control. And then I think the other big lesson is, you know, be careful how you view circumstances because there'll be that moment in life that you can calibrate everything else against and most everything else is going to be better, you know. It's going going to be an upside. So it's just interesting.
0: I've had two previous guests on Max's Island podcast, Paul Price and Claire Sarah Goodridge. Both of them are experts in flow and the concept of flow and being in flow. And they very much talk about the, the need for presence. There is a process of getting into the flow moment. Now, sure. you seem to have developed it by lived experience. They're in a, in a network at the moment that is trying to piece together some basic skills to allow people to get into flow more regularly. Yeah. Um, it's fantastic that you've actually, through your life experiences, deduced what it takes perhaps to get into flow. And, doing, and, and you do the things in your life that allow you to, to get into that, that flow position. So when you've experienced something around flow, where you're totally yeah. comfortable, where you are achieving what you want to achieve and executing perfectly, that by definition gives you the confidence to look for it again and prepare for it again and do the things that are necessary for it to happen again.
1: Yeah, it's 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 such an interesting topic. I I've studied a lot of Stephen um, Cotter's work. I think it is uh, Stephen Kotler.
0: Yes. So both Paul and Claire have worked with Stephen Kotler and the Flow Research Collective and the work that they're doing with Flow. So um, it's interesting that the work that they are doing is is really hitting the mainstream, and and people like yourself mm. and 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 them are, are are really understanding how important it is not only to the individual, but then how how that translates to families to communities to business organizations sure
1: if you've played sport and if you've really worked hard to play it at a you know competitive level you've probably experienced flow at some point without doubt um, and one of the one of the things that I feel really quite it's oh, look it doesn't bother me but I but I think it's a bit uh, sad if someone's never really experienced flow either in their work or in their, um, you know, I, I spent my young adult years in musical theatre in the country in the repertory club, you know. It's either a good night or a bad night. And it doesn't seem to be anything in between. But on the good nights, <laughs> you're in <laughs> flow, you know. Yes. And what, what's fascinating to me is you need emotion to go into flow. And people want to suppress their emotional state and and uh, be logical and work their way through. But, y- you know, you flow is such a unique state to be in. And I most of my work is working with companies and individuals and unpacking their unique genius uh, into these kind of visual models that allow them to explain it to people. And what's interesting for me is every company we work with around the world and the founders of those companies find it difficult to explain what their genius is because it's almost been knocked out of them that they should even talk about that. You know, if it's not a system, if you can't measure it, if you can't document. But you know, when you're ingenious, time becomes irrelevant. You don't get tired. Y- your mind is continually sharp. Fovial focus is a state that will lead you into flow. But you, you you're unlikely to go into flow if you suppress your emotional state. And yet so much of what we're taught is to control your emotions and just get on with it, right? So that classroom of teenagers, you can't suppress your emotional state and teach really, really well. And because you can't go into flow.
0: The emotion piece is really strong with the work that I do in my storytelling. I um, really work with people to make sure they they move from a thinking environment to a feeling environment as much as possible. That can only be done by letting emotions be involved in the discussion, in the story, in, in the way you're embracing something. And it's quite different. Than being emotional, but yeah, being triggered by emotion, and that could be anything from music to um, an experience that you can do, whether or a a hobby that you do, or it could just be the for me, I get uh, incredible emotion out of listening to other people's stories and engaging Mm. just from a listening point of view. All of those things are. You know, that evoke those emotions are really important to get you in a place and if you yeah. don't bring emotion in you never get to the starting point I, I totally agree with you
1: the debate is are we are we adopting a productive emotion or an unproductive emotion so anger anxiety fear are unproductive emotions they limit the number of behavioral responses available to you so if i'm fearful of that forward coming at me with the hockey ball I will have fewer options available to me with how I'm going to handle that situation but if every time a forward comes to me with a hockey ball I get excited which is a productive emotional state excitement curiosity joy I get excited because this is the chance to win the game and be the hero I get many more options available to me am I going to go out and crunch him and meet him at the top of the D? am I going to stay on the line and and make a spectacular save? Am I going to run to the midpoint of the D and mess with his head and cut his ankles so now he doesn't know what to do and cause him to falter? You know, I've got lots of options when I'm excited about what this actually means to me. But if I'm fearful, I'm going to stay on the line and give him the widest possible shot to the goal and probably he'll make the shot, you know. So, you know, walking into that classroom of teenagers, are you going to walk into the classroom thinking, I hate these kids? Or you're going to walk into the classroom thinking, I'm, I'm going to change lives today. And uh, it's a joy to be here. And one will give a very different result to the other. And and one will put you in, they can both put you in flow. I mean, fear can put you in flow. But reacting to the fear and, and dealing with it requires you to get into a productive emotional state. And, I mean, it's a, it's a big body of work. That I've examined, I mean, I'm, I'm a real believer that, I mean, we only have three outcomes from any experience. It's a win, a loss, or a lesson. You get to choose. And there's no reason why it needs to be a loss. You know, it's only a loss if you make it a loss. You know, the lessons are probably more important than the wins. So, you know, it's just, yeah, emotions. We're emotional 100% of the time. Choose it. Simon, that's a great place to
0: finish on. You're dead right. It's up to us to choose what we mm-hmm. want to do, how we want to perceive a situation. It's been fascinating talking to you. Love the story. Really, I want to ask the question before we go, though, is 19 mm. your lucky number?
1: <laughs> that's you're the first person that's ever asked me that when I talk about my 19th year. I, I don't actually have a lucky number. There you go. Um, We've got a whole other story about luck because luck's not as random as people think, but that's sure. another story.
0: <laughs> Simon, enjoyed the, the chat, enjoyed your story. Thanks very much for being on Max's Island. Absolutely.
1: Uh, my pleasure.
2: we spoke on the bus on the way home from work. He was lost in the details of life Each day was a blur Oh work and no play And how, how had it turned out this way mine